Welcome to the final installment of Silver Screen Superman. I'm your host, Blaine Dowler. This month we're taking a look at the latest incarnation of Superman in the film Man of Steel. And the story behind this one is essentially that Superman Returns grossly underperformed, but Christopher Nolan's Batman films and the Marvel movies keep raking in truckloads of money. So Warner Brothers decided to try again. They brought in Zack Snyder, director of 300 and Watchmen, Christopher Nolan, who was the driving force behind the latest Batman films, and David Goyer, who has also worked on the Chris Nolan Batman films on Blade and a number of other properties. So they've all got a good track record of making very profitable superhero movies. They went with a new cast, effectively new origin story that kept the key elements but changed a lot of the finer details. There's a new look and just generally speaking there's a new take. Now the new look was inspired in part by the new 52 look of Superman. So if anyone listening doesn't read comics themselves and has been following that, you may not know what the new 52 is. In 2011 DC Comics decided to take their entire line back to issue number one, have a completely new jumping on point for every title across the board. And part of that involved redesigning some characters. This came right out of Flashpoint, an event that was recently adapted into a direct-to-video release. So they kept the line down to 52 different titles, including a few Superman titles. The redesign of Superman made a few changes. Uh, the most noticeable changes are a high collar and losing the red trunks that he's been known for. So now he wears his underwear on the inside. Man of Steel lost the red trunks as they did in the comics. They also chose not to adopt the high collar. And this version of Superman is about as gritty as you can get and still be a Superman story. And there's a lot of common criticisms you could find online about this one. Uh, first of all, there are massive quantities of destruction in this. That one I don't have as big an issue with. When you have Kryptonians fighting in heavily populated areas, you're going to have destruction. And Kal-El couldn't really relocate the fights because a lot of times they're fighting around the machines that the other Kryptonians have brought into Earth, like the world engines. So he couldn't, you know, lead them out of Metropolis without letting their plan go through fruition. So they were calling the shots in terms of where the confrontations happened. And if you've got Kryptonians fighting, you're going to have destruction in their wake. Another common criticism is that Superman doesn't care enough about the people. In all the sequences before he wears the suit, we see that he does care about people. We see him saving people on oil rigs. We see him standing up for co-workers. We see him pulling a school bus of his classmates out of the lake at personal risk, even if it's not physical risk, but at risk of ruining a life he knows. When it comes to the fight inside Smallville, we see him telling people to get inside because it's not safe outside. Not that walls that humans can build seem to matter much when we've got Kryptonians fighting on the other side of them. He saves a soldier who falls out of a helicopter. He saves a pilot from Feyreal. He saves a colonel from his attacker. They don't make a big deal out of it. He doesn't speak to it in terms of dialogue, and so he doesn't say it out loud, but it does come through in his actions that he does care about people. It would be nice if he'd mentioned it once or twice, even when he's meeting with the colonel and the colonel says, this man is not our enemy. Instead of just saying thank you and leaving, it would have been nice to say, I don't know if I can contain them. I certainly don't know if I can beat them. Can you help protect these people? Can you get them out of there? You know, just call for an evacuation. Do something that shows, yeah, he is thinking about others as well. Another common criticism is that, you know, Jonathan Kent essentially told him to let people die. That's not quite the way it plays out. So after he's saved the school bus and his identity is at risk, he says, what should I have done? Just let them die? And Jonathan Kent does say, maybe. He doesn't say yes, he says maybe, and it's a pretty non-committal maybe. So the way Costner plays it, because Jonathan Kent is Kevin Costner in this version, then, yeah, you can tell he's not really sold on it, but 
his focus is in protecting his family first. It's a perfectly understandable parenting instinct. If you compare that to the actions that Jonathan has when he's facing a tornado, he's out there putting himself at risk to save others. He's telling Clark to stay out of it because he knows Clark is going to be saving a lot of people and he's not going to be holding back when he does it. And in fact, he tells Clark specifically, stay with your mother. So I suspect, again, he's protecting his family, knowing that Clark is going to be able to do a lot more to save Martha Kent, played by Diane Lane, than anyone else can. And Jonathan does show that he really does value life. I mean, he goes back for the family dog when a lot of people wouldn't go back for an animal, regardless of how close they are to that animal. So those are all criticisms that I heard coming in from other people. They didn't really bother me much the first time I watched it. What really stuck in my craw the first time was the final resolution between Superman and Zod. If you haven't seen it yet, you might want to skip ahead a bit or just stop the podcast if you're planning to see it and come back because this is a major spoiler. But the final resolution with Zod has Superman killing Zod. Essentially, Superman has destroyed the last chance of bringing back the Kryptonian people. And the Kryptonians in this film are essentially genetic engineered for a particular role, and Zod was created for the purpose of protecting Krypton and its people. They no longer exist, and he's blaming Superman for that. Although in his mind, he's Kal-El, not Superman. And he says, point blank, I'm going to destroy this planet, I'm going to destroy everything you cared about like you destroyed what I care about. This ends when either you die or I die. And that's it. So he throws the gauntlet down to Superman and says he is not stopping until one of them is dead. And then essentially goes on a rampage. So Superman's fighting him, and they are out there tearing through Metropolis again, but they are fighting that way. It ultimately comes down to what appears to be Grand Central Station, or a reasonable facsimile for Metropolis rather than New York. And Zod uses the heat vision and starts slowly bringing those heat vision rays towards a family that's still in there. And Superman is, you know, asks him to stop, ultimately stops it by snapping Zod's neck. Now that's something that, and there's some precedent for Superman allowing Zod to die, at least, in the Donner films, rather than actually taking his life himself. This one, he's a lot more proactive. He's making the choice. I mean, the Superman we're used to would have found other options and would have saved it. But again, on the second viewing, I started thinking more about what Zod was doing. He was attacking with heat vision. All he has to do is look at them, and they fry. Instead, he was slowly bringing the heat vision towards them, taunting Superman, and up to this point, nothing has been slow in any of their battles. So I think what this was, Zod was counting on Superman to kill him. I think this was basically Superman-assisted suicide. He has no purpose at this point. There is no Krypton. The last remnants of Krypton are himself and Kal-El. And as long as Kal-El's the only Kryptonian on this planet, he is pretty much invincible and safe, and Krypton will go on. So it still doesn't sit completely right with me that Superman killed Zod. I mean, this is a character who can move at tremendous speeds. In order to do that, you have to be able to think and react at tremendous speeds. And he had enough time, and even me thinking at human speeds, I came up with three or four different options for how he could have gotten out of that situation. And he could have put his own hand in front of the heat vision, he could have tipped Zod's head back instead of snapping his neck so that he could only shoot at the ceiling, he could have flown up and dragged Zod with him, he could have flown down through the floor and dragged Zod with him. There are a number of options, and that's what I thought of in the theater watching it the first time, and I cannot think at Superman's speeds. He should have been able to come up with another solution. Now, I've heard rumors that this is going to be a major motivation in the sequels, that Chris Nolan had a problem with it, but Goyer and Snyder were saying, no, look at what this sets up for future stories, when he draws the line, says never again, and this is why he won't take another life, even when he's dealing with these fragile little humans. That doesn't fix this movie, even though it may improve the franchise. I still have a problem with it, but watching the film again, seeing how the whole thing gets put together, the problems I have with it are not bad enough to spoil the entire movie for me. Because even though there is 
Definitely something we can criticize there. There's a lot in here that is very good. For one thing, when Kryptonians are fighting, they are actually using their super speed. So these guys fight, and they fight quickly. And that's used to good effect even in the 3D version, which is a rare thing these days. A lot of times it seems just like a gimmick to improve profitability at the exhibitor level. This actually felt like they planned for 3D and created sequences that are well-suited to 3D. On top of that, I really enjoyed virtually every aspect of Lois Lane, particularly the closing dialogue she gets for the movie. This is easily my favorite incarnation of Lois. For one thing, they didn't go out of their way to show you that she's gorgeous and do her up to make her look attractive. The first time we see her, she's in a parka. She spends a lot of the end of the movie in army fatigues. She's got some flattering outfits, but that's not all they dress her in. And part of that is because they've got Amy Adams. They don't need to go out of their way to make her look gorgeous. She just is gorgeous. It's a very utilitarian Lois. She's more concerned about getting a story, getting in there. She's in the thick of the action, but she's not a damsel in distress. She's out there actually helping resolve the situations while she's putting herself in danger. And she's actually acting like the Pulitzer Prize winning reporter as we see when she figures out that this alien who helped her is Clark Kent long before they really get to know each other. Everything about her works right down to the way they build the love story between herself and Clark. I understand why she stands out to him compared to the other humans. It's not hard to see why Superman stands out from her perspective. That's there in every incarnation. But this is the incarnation where we can really and truly understand why Superman sees her and really nobody else. The other thing it has going for it is that they really did take a complete departure from Donner's vision. Now, the first Donner Superman is still my favorite Superman film, period. Now, whether Man of Steel turned out to be successful or not, we did need something to cleanse the palette and make room for a new version and go in a completely different direction. Even Hans Zimmer's percussion heavy score, it's not a John Williams score. It's still a good score. I don't think it will be, ever be as great or as instantly recognizable as John Williams, but it's a completely different direction. Again, new directions are largely what the franchise needs. Whether you like it or not, we've been presented with a different version of this. We've got a completely reimagined Krypton, which is very, very different from people in glowing robes in walking around in crystals. They changed the structure of the superhero film. So we've got a very non-linear story with flashbacks. We don't have the common problem of having our hero fully formed partway through the movie. Not that it's really a problem, but in this case, it feels a little bit different because we don't get Superman recognizable as Superman until the aftermath of this film. The entire film is the origin, not just the first couple acts of the story. So as I said in the Oh Yeah podcast, when I first saw it, I was undecided about it. There were elements of it I really liked. The action sequence on the rig is quite well done, but ultimately I needed to see it again to make up my mind. Now that it's out on home video, I've had a chance to do that. I do think the pros outweigh the cons. It still doesn't touch Richard Donner's film, but it is the second best live action interpretation of the character. We've got some very good casting with Russell Crowe as Jorel, with Kevin Costner as Jonathan Kent, Diane Lane as Martha Kent, Michael Shannon as Zod does a great job, Henry Cavill as Superman does a great job, Lawrence Fishburne as Perry White was an excellent choice, Steve Lombard just plain exists in this version. This is a worthy Superman film. Like I said, it's not perfect but it is enjoyable. Now, in previous podcasts, I did discuss the possibility of discussing the third version of Superman 3, and a number of people let me know that that is something that they're interested in hearing about. So that version does exist in comic book form. Specifically, it came out as a result of Richard Donner and Jeff Johns working together. Now, Jeff Johns 
has since risen through the ranks at DC to become their chief creative officer. So he's doing a lot of work on that and helping steer the overall direction of DC Comics. Before that, he actually did work as an assistant for Richard Donner on conspiracy theory, and he was pushing for that job because he had so much love and respect for Donner Superman films. So once he started working up through the ranks in DC and was able to write a lot of top-selling comics, he was able to negotiate with Richard Donner and they were able to come in and co-author a story. And that story that they co-authored is basically an adaptation of Richard Donner's original idea for Superman 3. It was originally published in Action Comics issues 844, 845, 846, and 851, as well as Action Comics Annual 11. It has been reprinted in trade paperback form as Superman Last Son, and it's available both collected and as individual issues through Comixology if you prefer to read digitally. Now, if you do read digitally, I should give you a heads up that the artist Adam Kubert did a lot of great great work, but he frequently used his two-page spreads, which tend to shrink down. So for those of us who prefer to read vertically a page at a time, it can be a little bit tricky. This is one that only really works on tablets if you've got it in landscape view and you're going panel by panel. And the final major piece of the art team on this one is Dave Stewart as the colorist. So the basic outline is that a spacecraft lands on Earth with a Kryptonian child inside. Clark takes responsibility for raising him, but the government is getting involved this time. And we soon learn that he's the child of Zod and Ursa, and that he could escape from the Phantom Zone because he was born there. So they send him out and follow him. And the fact that he was born there is what allows them to keep the Phantom Zone door open so that once he does escape, that's how they can lead and follow the trail out. So they are naturally abusive parents, as we would expect, and he doesn't want to help them out. He would rather stay with Lois and Clark. So when Zod and Ursa come after him, they bring every known Kryptonian prisoner out of the Phantom Zone with the goal of making Earth new Krypton and ruling it. And Superman is ultimately left with just one way to stop them. I mean, he just barely stopped three Kryptonians, let alone the dozens that came through. He finds himself going to Lex Luthor, who created an entire arsenal of weapons designed specifically to kill Kryptonians. So while Superman shows up just asking to borrow them, the only way he can get Lex to cooperate is actually by joining forces with Lex Luthor, Bizarro, Parasite, and Metallo to end the Kryptonian threat to Earth. So we discussed Bizarro a little bit in terms of Superman 3 and 4. He is a crazy backwards Superman. A lot of people are familiar with him just because of the comments that came out on Seinfeld. Parasite showed up in the cartoons. He hasn't showed up in the live-action movies yet. He can basically siphon off somebody's power and life energy, so when he gets close to Superman or the Kryptonians, they get weaker, he gains their powers. And Metallo has also shown up in Smallville, as well as animated incarnations, but not the movie incarnations. Uh, Metallo is a character named John Corbin, who as a result of an accident, had kryptonite implanted in him as a power source to keep him going. This version of Metallo actually has multiple colors of kryptonite that he can use for various effects. There's not just green kryptonite. There's also red and blue and gold. Blue has more of an effect on Bizarro. Red is part of the goofy Silver Age of comics, and each piece of red kryptonite affects different kryptonians different ways and has somewhat random effects where it basically rewrites their genetic code for a brief period of time, while gold temporarily robs them of their powers, which is used to good effect here. He's basically watching as the kryptonians fly by, 
and he robs them of their powers while they are several stories above the concrete ground. So they do all join forces to end the Kryptonian threat to Earth, but of course, as far as Lex is concerned, Superman is part of that Kryptonian threat. The comic book Lex Luthor is a little more xenophobic, and he basically just doesn't trust aliens, doesn't understand why so many people immediately trust Superman. He wants to be seen as their hero and savior and leader, and he's essentially jealous of what Superman has and the following he has. So some changes were made in the story just to make it fit in the current comic continuity. The biggest example is probably that Jonathan Kent is still alive. In this one, Lois and Clark are married, and Lois obviously knows that Clark Kent is Superman. We see the Justice League a bit. They're not a huge part of it, but there's a lot of damage, so we see them running damage control. They're not taking the decision-making action, but they do things like getting Batman to help forge documents so that the Kryptonian child can blend in. So if you're coming into this from the movies, there will be some things that you won't be able to quite pin down and understand, but it's not a huge problem. This is generally a good story. And I could see how this would have made a very good third act, especially looking again at the basic three-act structure. The first act ends with a point of no return. The second act ends with the reversal. The reversal in this case being Superman and Lex Luthor finding themselves forced to work together. Sort of the enemy of my enemy is my friend kind of idea. So because it's not really a proper film version, I'm not going to go into a lot of detail on it, but it is worth checking out. And if you know people who haven't really given the comics a try, but they enjoy the movies, well, if they've seen the Donner movies, this would be a good place to start. Even if they haven't, if they only know it from the recent Man of Steel or Superman Returns, well, as long as they understand that for some reason Snyder went with Feora Ull instead of Ursa for the female lead, this is also not a huge stretch and they should be able to pick this up and understand it well enough to know if they're going to enjoy the comics in the long term or not. So that wraps up the last chapter of Silver Screen Superman. I've had fun this year. I hope you have too. We did this through the year because it is the 75th anniversary of Superman, so the same podcast feed will be used for the big screen Batman series going through all of the theatrical releases of Batman on the 14th of the month through 2014, and we will continue these podcasts in 2015 and beyond with other superhero movies, such as the recent Spade of Marvel movies, you know, the Spider-Man movies, the X-Men films, the Fantastic Four films, the 1944 Captain America serials, essentially anything I can get my hands on, and I'll probably arrange it a franchise at a time. So with that, that wraps up the coverage for the year. Please feel free to leave a review on iTunes or email me at bureau42podcasts at gmail.com. And we'll see you in January when we discuss the original Batman serial from 1943, which is not in the public domain, but which is available both on DVD and through Netflix. Please join us then.